Welcome to Preaching for the Long Haul, a podcast where we hope to shape a vision for preaching for a lifetime. My name is Solomon Munchbaum. And I'm Jake Bauer, and we'll be your hosts. Jake, today we decided that we are just going to talk through a sermon. And not just any sermon, but a sermon given by the Prince of Preachers himself, Charles Spurgeon. Yes. And, and Jake, just before, even before we get into his sermon, why, why are we choosing to talk through a sermon from Charles Spurgeon, of all people? What is, what is so special or unique about Spurgeon? Yes, if anyone out there is a preacher at all, you've probably heard the name of Charles Spurgeon. Uh, clearly, I, w- I would say the historically the most famous preacher of all time. Would you say that's true? Pro- that's probably true. Yeah. yeah. Maybe, I mean, less famous than Jesus Christ. Yeah. And Paul, but I, w- I would say out of actual non-biblical preachers, he's probably the most famous preacher ever. And both Solomon and I have been greatly impacted by his sermons. We, we personally love him, so it's, excited f- it's exciting for us to talk about him from a personal level. Uh, beyond that, I think his preaching is really unique and full of interesting twists and turns. You hear him talked about and held up so highly, and then you read one of his sermons. It's not quite what you would expect. Oh, totally. Yeah, and... and it's, he's held up a lot of times as this guy who's an expositor, and it's so interesting. And we'll and we'll talk through that in in this sermon. But Charles Spurgeon, I mean personally, is just one of my heroes. I think Met- Metropolitan Tabernacle in London was at that time the biggest church in the world. Yes, it was. Yeah, and so Charles Spurgeon was a pastor in the 1800s and preached. And this was before anyone had mics. Uh, microphones, any way to amplify your voice. I mean, he was pre- he was preaching to thousands of people every week, thousands of them, and I mean, probably even more than that who came to faith underneath his ministry and his preaching. Yeah, and people were not. It wasn't. They didn't have cars to travel. People would come miles to hear Charles Spurgeon preach. Miles. Yeah, I mean, all of, we have all of his sermons because after he preached, they would be recorded and printed and sold all around the world. Like people were reading Spurgeon in America. So it's, he's one of the most influential pastors of, of his time, but probably of his time for sure. And then even since then, I mean, most, so many pastors, I've not met a pastor who has not heard of the name Charles Spurgeon. So that's, that's a little bit about why we, why we want to talk about him and his sermon. And today, Jake, the way we kind of chose which sermon we're going to talk through was based on this article that we found from the Spurgeon Center for Biblical Preaching at Midwestern Seminary in an article titled Spurgeon's Greatest Sermon. And so I was like, we were like, well, if this is Spurgeon's greatest sermon, this would be a great place for us to start. So, <laughs> Objectively, and, the greatest. Right. Spurgeon. And I mean, who, who knows how exactly you come to that conclusion and able to weigh that, but, but the sermon we're talking about today is called Compel Them to Come In, a sermon preached from Luke 14.23 on December 5th, 1858, when he was only 24 years old. So basically, that's basically like where we are. Yeah. In oh man, I actually, before you saying that, I didn't even realize that, that he was only 24 when he preached that sermon. That stresses me out a little bit. I'm like, I got, there's a bar 
I, I could be reaching. <laughs> I'm not reaching. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he preached that sermon when he's 24. Sorry, keep going. Yeah, <laughs> preached the sermon when he was 24. And is, in his own words, he rec- it's recorded that Spurgeon says of this, that I think I never preached another sermon by which so many souls were one to God. Mm. So, so Spurgeon preached the sermon, tons of people coming to faith. And so... This is, this is kind of the setting for where we're going to start. Great. Yeah, so we'll talk through a couple of things and point out, we obviously can't summarize the entire sermon for you, but for those of you who don't know, Luke 14 is uh, a proverb that he's talking through. I mean, sorry, a parable that he's talking through. The parable of the Great Banquet. I'm just going to read it. Really fast. Yeah, go ahead. And then we'll focus on the one verse he chooses to sit in. Yeah. This, is, this is the NIV. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all like began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. And verse 23 is the verse that Spurgeon sits in, which right. again is, then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. Hence the name of the sermon, compel them to come in. And the first thing is Spurgeon, although he's preaching on a Sunday morning to his church, he does not assume that everyone in his congregation is a believer. You get this hint from the entire message. He just again and again is talking to wide varieties of people and he addresses the room as though, almost as though no one believes. He actually has a precursor. Totally. In the beginning of the message saying, hey, if you're a believer, this isn't for you, Um, which I thought was interesting. But Here's a quote by him. He says, Now I turn for one moment to some here. There are some of you here, members of Christian churches, who make a profession of religion, but unless I be mistaken in you, and I shall be happy if I am, your profession is a lie. You do not live up to it. You dishonor it. You can live in the perpetual practice of absenting yourselves from God's house, if not in sins worse than that. Solomon, what do you think about what he says about these kinds of Christians, and how do you think through this in your own preaching, where you are in an evangelical church full of many churched people. Yeah, I think this was, I think the way that he even says this quote particularly is so bold. I I mean, he straight up just says, you're, you'll make me happy if I'm wrong, but your profession of being a Christian is a lie. <laughs> and he says, you live in, you, you keep practicing sin. And the one that he uses is you keep absent, you, you, you keep not showing up at church. <laughs> and he's like, if not, in sin's worse than that. And so it's like, 
it's just so crazy. I mean, it's so crazy to think that even that that's the sin that he goes after is, yeah, you know how I know that you're not a Christian? You keep not showing up at church. Yeah, I so, think we'd move some people in their seats if one of us said that on a Sunday morning. Oh, totally, yeah. totally. But I think this is the, the probably one of the reasons why he was so powerful is because Spurgeon just had this way of being able to break down, like break past people's outward religiosity and people's practicing faith. Like they think that they're Christians because they do these things or because they say or because they grew up this way. And so this is this is probably even true, probably in, in some of our settings, um, maybe even maybe even more true in my setting than in yours. I'm not I'm not exactly sure. Yeah, different cultures. Yeah. But where people there's there's this culture of people who just keep showing up at church because it's what they've always done or they show up with their parents. And particularly even I mean in our setting, I mean we're talking to to middle schoolers. And so a lot of them are probably showing up just because their their parents are, you know, for better or for worse, right? That's not, that's not a judgment yep. on on whether or not that's a good or bad thing. It's just what's happening is they, they go to church because their parents go to church, at least a lot of them. Yes. And I felt, I, I always go back and forth on how I feel about preaching the gospel in a Christian setting because I don't want to f- come off like I'm assuming, like, oh yeah, you obviously you're not a Christian. You go to church every week, and you know, G- is Jesus real in your life? Like, <laughs> like, and and be accusatory. Yeah, you want to talk to those who are in the room. Totally. Yeah. But also, I mean, part of even my own story that I tell my wife all the time is, I think growing up in church, people talk to me and assume that I was a Christian. And I and I don't think that that was helpful for me. Like mm. no one, no one ever talked to me like I was an unbeliever. Like I was just in. Um, Did it give you some like false assurance to- almost? Totally, or like, or this sense of like I I didn't need to make a decision, like I didn't need to believe the gospel, or I didn't need to to for myself make a decision to follow after Jesus. Yes, because there was this assumption that I just was. was when I don't think, I, I don't really think I was. I don't think I was following after Jesus. I don't think I was in relationship with him. I don't think I was loving him. I don't think I was in obedience to him. Mm-hmm. Or maybe even was doing anything that showed that even I had a desire for that. So in some senses, I can't help but also think about, like I, there's probably a kid here who is grew up in church and no one's ever talked to him like he's not a believer or or she like not like like some young guy or girl who just needs to be encouraged like you need to make a decision like you need to decide whether or not you're going to follow after Jesus and so i think i i feel that and even especially in my last sermon that i preached i think that was like one of the places where i was just talking about Jesus is the son of god mm. and the place that i press really hard was if you grew up in church, this is easy for you to say. Yes. But if you really believe this, that's crazy that Jesus is the son of God, that that the God of the universe has someone that he's been in internal relationship with forever. And we call him the son of God. Yeah. Like 
And so that's that's kind of the place that I I pressed was okay. You probably have heard this, and you probably intellectually assent to this belief, but but what does that even mean for you? So th- so in some senses, that's kind of even a recent example yeah. of what place I pushed. But how about how about you, Jake? Yeah, I try to. I mean, I really in this season have tried to think about this question and this idea in every sermon I preach of am I acting like everyone in my crowd is a believer? Is that yeah. the way I'm making my application and the way I'm illustrating and the things I'm assuming? If some kid walked in to the middle school ministry and had never walked in a church in their entire life and had never heard the gospel and had no idea of any of the Christian lingo or had never opened the Bible, would they feel spoken to and feel like they could listen? and not be assumed upon that they that there's a higher bar that they just couldn't reach because they didn't grow up in the culture. Um, so that, uh, it's a really important question to me. I, I do think you do have to preach to those who are in your room. You can't, if you have a churched church, then you shouldn't preach to everyone all the time and act like they don't know familiar passages. You, you, you shouldn't say and if you've never heard john three sixteen, here's what it, you know <laughs> it, it preached to those who are in the room don't don't uh condescend them or patronize them um but there there is I, I i think one thing one of my mentors would always say is are you confident every time you go preach that everyone can articulate and understand and embrace the gospel perfectly because if you are then don't preach it but if you're if you're not confident in that, you should be clear in articulating the gospel and in articulating it to those who have never heard it. Totally. And last Sunday on Easter, which was Resurrection Day, uh, our pastor at my campus, um, he preached the gospel and he articulated it very clearly. And I was refreshed by it. I was refreshed by it. Mm-hmm. I've been going to church since I was really young and have heard the gospel hundreds of times. And I needed to hear that on Sunday. I needed to hear it articulated simply and clearly and reminded of what it means for my life. And so I don't, it's not like we can just remove, I I almost disagreed with Spurgeon's first comment of, Hey, if you're a Christian, this isn't for you. Totally. Um, Cause I, I thought, well, actually, why am I feeling so ministered to by the sermon that I'm reading of yours now. Right, right, right. <laughs> it's, 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 you don't just accept the gospel and walk away and go, I don't need to hear that again. Right. Um, the, the entire life we live is uh, submitting to the gospel in every aspect of our lives. Right. So, like, being able to preach the gospel isn't just because we're assuming that people aren't, like, everyone in front of us isn't saved. Yes. But even if you are this is for you. This is for you. You need totally. to be reminded of why you're not dead in your sin and why you, that means you shouldn't walk in it anymore. Totally. Uh, or you need to be reminded of that, that guilt and shame that you're storing in your heart. You need to be reminded of why that's not accurate and not helpful for you. Totally. Yeah, and that actually leads us into the next thing that I want to talk about, Jake, is, is Spurgeon in this sermon, I mean, not just in this sermon, but particularly in this mm-hmm. sermon, he's so bold yes. in the way that he preaches the gospel. He com- in compelling, like the his, the title of his sermon, his text, to compel them to come in, that is, that is what he is doing. Yes. He, he straight up says multiple times, it is my job 
to compel you to believe the gospel, to come into Christ, to come into the Christian faith. Like, he's very direct. And here's a quote. I mean, you, you mentioned even that there's an even more direct, bold quote where he threatens people. And, he, <laughs> and I, mean, he's, I mean, he gets to a point where he's talking about hell. Like, can you, can you bear a fire that will never go out? I mean, like he's so he's, but he, but here's here's a quote. But he says, "Do you still refuse it? Then I must change my tone a minute. I will not merely tell you the message and invite you, as I do with all earnestness and sincere affection. I will go further, sinner. In God's name, I command you to repent and believe. And do you ask me whence my authority? I am an ambassador of heaven. I mean, he." He like pulls no punches. Yeah. He he goes, I, I command you to believe the gospel and to turn away from your sin. And if you're questioning my authority, God has sent me. <laughs> like, I, I represent God. <laughs> and so so Jake, what what can we learn from Spurgeon's boldness in his preaching of the gospel? Or like what, what would you do this? Like, would you feel the kind of freedom to be as bold as as what he's doing here yeah something he says toward the end that also reminded me of a way i felt last week while being preached to was he says uh i'm clean of your blood hmm. so you are responsible for your own blood is, yeah. is what he says in the last and that that is stunning when you hear that initially totally. in our world today you hear someone say hey if you don't believe right now it's your fault it's that you have been told this clearly and compelled to come in, and if you're still rejecting it, it's on you. Um, we don't like that message today of yeah. where it, I, I've heard unbelievers in the past blame God for their unbelief or right. whatever else, or or say you know their questions, their doubts are are what reigns in their life for the reason they don't believe. Um, but anyways, to answer your question, what what can we learn from this boldness is. I don't know if I would be quite the same as Spurgeon because I'm not Spurgeon. Uh, right, right. <laughs> the way I would have this boldness and articulate it, I, I don't think, I, I think in our context today, it's different. Hmm. I do think one thing we need to feel when we preach that I don't feel enough is that we have left people without an excuse. Hmm. Um, and that that is what I take away from Spurgeon's comment at the end is your blood be on your own head if you don't believe right. of, do we walk away going, I have told them Christ as clearly and as compellingly as I know how. Right. If they do not believe after that, it's their fault. Right. And what that means, first and foremost, is that we need to embrace the gospel message really clearly in every message we preach. Right. And second is that we do, I, I, I will say, I think we could be bolder about how we talk about sin and how we talk about hell. Uh that there's something compelling in Spurgeon's sermon that isn't compelling in our preaching today because he's not scared to say, your sins condemn you to hell mm -hmm. and God's mercy is the only way out of that. Totally. And if you continue in your sin and don't embrace God today, you're, you will be eternally punished and there is no excuse for you. Right. And he even says, it, how do you picture coming up to Jesus and, him saying, depart from me, I never knew you. But just picture that in your mind. Picture 
the hell that's before you as you try to enter heaven and those oh. gates are slammed on your face because you were a sinner who's rebelled against God and said no and yet had the opportunity to accept his mercy. So there, there is something, I, the boldness of, without being mean or bullying or coercing people, totally, but being honest with them. I think people want the honesty right. of the gospel today and the honesty of sin. I, I had some students forever ago tell me I pulled punches in one of my sermons and well, didn't, they didn't feel like I talked clearly enough about hell and punishment. I People want to hear what the Bible actually says right? and what's actually, they don't want it sh- any more sugarcoated than we've already tried to make it today. Totally. Um, and, and it's my impulse is out of an effort to be kind and nice. I'd sometimes do pull punches or, or right. feel myself not giving the text quite its edge of fierceness. Right. You blunt, you blunt the edge a little bit. Yes, yeah. exactly. Where scripture says something really, really clearly and even more difficult to digest. Sometimes we, we want to sugarcoat it and say, Let, no, like, this is, let's spoon feed this text a little bit. Totally. Um, and there's ways, again, there's ways to do that without being a bully. Yeah. But I do think we could all grow in being bolder in what scripture truly says about sin, death, and hell. Totally. And, and I mean, I think that's so interesting too because those students asking you to do that or saying that, I mean, if, if they're not getting it, in preaching, like if they're not getting it in church, if they're not getting it in the Christian setting, they're for sure not getting it somewhere else. Like, yes, like our students probably expect that when they come, they're going to hear the Bible taught, and like they're they're probably not wanting us to keep telling them that the things that they're hearing from their friends or in school or in music or in culture or what they're seeing on social media, that like they don't want us to just keep saying those things. Yes. Um, <laughs> even though sometimes it might feel like we're stepping on toes or, yeah. It, it totally. feels scary to tell people totally. their sin is evil. It, it, it feels like, oh, who am I? But, that, but it's what scripture says, you know, it's, right. it, as long as we can divorce ourselves from the authority that's saying sin deserves hell, totally, then then it's not, it's the voice of God, um, and and we have to be bold to live into that. Yeah, yeah. Is there is there anything else that stuck out from this sermon for you, Jake? Yeah, uh, here's a quote, and I, I've noticed this in other Spurgeon sermons. Spurgeon almost always and each sermon has a time where he describes the crucifixion. Mm-hmm. Sometimes in more detail, others, uh, other sermons in more detail. Um, but I do think it's interesting. I'm just going to read this and then talk about it. You see this next. You see that miserable sufferer tied to a pillar and lashed with terrible scourges till the shoulder bones are seen like white islands in the midst of a sea of r- blood. Again, you see this third picture. It is the same man hanging on the cross with hands extended and with feet nailed fast, dying, groaning, bleeding. Methought the picture spoke and said, It is finished. Now all this hath Jesus Christ of Nazareth done in order that God might consistently with his justice pardon sin. And the message to you this morning, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That is, trust him, renounce thy works and thy ways, and set thine heart alone on this man who gave himself for sinners. It's like poetry. It's like poetry. It's so uh, clever in its rhetoric. And I would just say Spurgeon paints the cross vividly again and again in his sermons. 
I, I think we could do that more. I, I love yeah. how much he's willing and maybe over the top, he goes to the cross in every sermon. Um, yeah. but I do think the way that he, he can't talk about the crucifixion without thinking about it as a horrible evil. And we're almost desensitized to it. Totally. We just don't even think about the picture of Jesus dying on the cross in the way that he did. Yeah. Um, where he visually says, like, think about his shoulder bones being exposed. That's, that's a gruesome totally. image. Yeah. So I love that. Um, yeah. Any comments on that or what stuck out to you? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's so, it's so interesting because I have been thinking about, I mean, even in relationship to our talk with Mark about Christocentric preaching and, I, I mean, even the last, it's so weird to try to preach the Gospels and be like, do, do I preach every story in the Gospel and be like, at the end, be like, and he goes to the cross, like he goes to the cross for your sins. And, and so it is an interesting thing to keep thinking about and pondering of like, oh, yes. do, I, do I preach the crucifixion particularly in every message? Mm-hmm. And, and how do we, and if we do that, how do we do that faithfully? Yeah, totally. Um, I actually want to ask you a, another question about, I mean, this sermon, because this is just what kind of, I mean, we read it and we're like so edified, but it's just even, I, I would love to just even talk about how, how is he using this text? Like how he's pulling a command that belongs in a parable that the guy in the parable is telling to the servant, and he uses it at the basis of his message for himself. Yes. And so, and not, not to just question the prince preachers like we're above him or anything, uh, but, but I would love to even just talk through, like, is this the kind of exegesis that, that we were taught to use in school or to be taught to preach this way? Like, um, yeah, like, I would love to just talk through his exegesis with you and yeah. his use of his 14. To answer your initial question, by most assuredly not. <laughs> it, is, <laughs> it, is, it is not the kind of exegesis <laughs> we would do or that I'd feel comfortable doing. Yeah. I feel that way every time I read a Spurgeon sermon. And it's what almost makes him interesting to me and yeah. more compelling to me is that he was one of the, I would say, one of the greatest preachers in history. And yet he preached on one verse of this parable without mentioning that it was a parable. He doesn't mention that it's a parable in yeah. the whole sermon. Yeah. He doesn't mention the context. He mentions a little bit of the context of the actual verse. But I would say in standards today, it's not an exegetical sermon. Um, with that said, he, he is a Puritan-styled preacher. Totally. Which means he really does sit in one verse. Like, that's how. that's how... So many of the Puritans preach. Yes, for like three hundred for like two two hundred years. Yeah. yeah, for better or for worse. Yeah, uh-huh. their preaching had things to it that have changed the world in ways that <clears throat> today's preaching is not doing. Mm-hmm. I love where we we where we are with preaching today, but I don't want what Lewis calls chronological snobbery, where we look back and say we're better than them. Yeah, we we figured it out. They've they've been non-expository or non-exegetical. So while I wouldn't preach this way, I wouldn't say. It's unfaithful. No, I, I don't think I would. I don't think I would. I, yeah. I think he does things in other sermons. He does things with texts that I'm not excited about. Totally. Um, yeah. I, I think he has a method that is generally really faithful 
that that he's willing to dive really deeply into a text, but sometimes it leads him to areas where I'm like, that is just not you. Like, I don't. I That's don't like think not what that. that's saying. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And the way I'd say it is that typically what happens with the Charles Spurgeon sermon is he sits in that one text for the first ten minutes of the message, where oh. he he talks about the text, and then slowly he digresses further and further and further away from the text toward more application and more general. Uh, implications of that text totally. and that makes us uncomfortable but in its own way it is a unique style of expounding a text and it he does things i could not do because he chooses to use the text in this way what what is your thoughts on his exegesis yeah you know you know i remember i remember being at bible college sitting in our preaching classes having taken like these classes, learning how to do exegesis and like still like knowing in my peripheral that Charles Spurgeon was like this great preacher hero person held up by reformed people. Yes. And, and then I remember I like went to go read one of his sermons for the first time. And I was, I mean, I was, I just remember being so shocked. I was like, yeah. what, what did he do? He didn't I, preach on 20 verses and walk through it step by step. Totally. Yeah. But, but also, like, he's, what Spurgeon does so often, which, I mean, Martin Lloyd-Jones also does this. I mean, and and then Piper learning from Edwards and, I think, following in the steps of, like, Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he, when he preaches through Romans, I mean, he preached four sermons on Romans 1.16. And, I mean, they're preaching doctrine. Like, they're, yes. they're, they're preaching, they're, ripping a the- theological idea out of this text and they're they're basically essentially just preaching the, that doctrine yeah that's like good. that that theological idea and so i mean it's it's so interesting i think i i think we can learn from that like i think there's probably a level where we don't do that anymore um where i think some of the depth of what we read in puritan preaching sometimes comes and like how how did you see that 50 minute sermon in that sentence yeah. which like we just don't know how to do that anymore and, <laughs> and maybe part of that is like well it's like i mean it's probably not historical grammatical um yeah but i i i want to learn from it but also it makes me feel uncomfy so i don't i, I don't know <laughs> <laughs> like if we were trying to emulate it we'd probably end up just being I don't I don't know if you have any other thoughts before before we end here, Jake. Yeah, so. I mean, if you had two sentences to say it, what makes Spurgeon so compelling to you? I think Spurgeon he's just so bold. He's so bold in his proclamation of what is true in the scriptures. And I mean, even though so e- even what we were just saying, like he takes one verse i mean his whole sermon he's quoting scripture yeah his whole sermon he's quoting scripture so like he's he's saturated in scripture he know and he knows how to do exegesis mm-hmm. i mean if, if you read some of his commentaries like he he knows how to do exegesis so i but i think he's just he's so bold and i think that's the thing that that compels is so compelling about him i don't know if you have what's so makes Spurgeon so compelling for yeah. you he knows people he knows the gospel I do think his gospel fluency, to use to borrow a phrase 
Vanderstelt, I think. Yep. Is unbelievable. You you just see he he knows he he doesn't have a question in his heart of the sinfulness of man and the mercy of Christ. And that makes that comes out in every sermon that you read by him. You almost can't help you you walk away from a Spurgeon sermon and go, oh, who can help believing the gospel? Who can help knowing they need the gospel? And that that to me is his heart and therefore what makes his preaching so invigorating. Yeah. Okay. You maybe had one last thought. Great. Like I think I think I, I don't know if this you feel this, but I feel in this uh, particularly in our context, our day and age. I feel the need to be so nuanced. Yes. And and he just doesn't. Like he just doesn't feel the need to nuance the way that he sees truth or to articulate and soften all these other views. But he just says, This this is what's true. And he and when he preaches, either either you have to believe it or you have to be like, Okay, he believes it, but he's a fool. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Uh, would you say maybe the word simplicity? Yes. There's, there's a simplicity that's friendly and engageable. Um, and it makes every sinner feel like they can believe. Yeah. 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 Well, Jake, I love doing this with you. I'd love to talk through another sermon again at some point. It'd be yeah. awesome. Yeah, this was fun. Well, you've been listening to Preaching for the Long Haul, a podcast where we hope to shape a vision for preaching 